If I'm the devil, which I'm not, and I was trying to figure out how can I diabolically keep my reign on earth for as long as possible, I certainly need to keep the Jewish people from crying out and welcoming Jesus back. How can I do that? I know I'll sow into the fabric of the worldwide system of believing in Jesus a rejection of Jewish people and an idea that the Jewish people have nothing to do with this faith, right? It's diabolical. Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your co-host, Carly Berna. And I'm Ezra Benjamin. We're a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world in the headlines through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. If you've been listening to this podcast for a few seasons, you may have heard Ezra say that Jesus didn't just show up and create Christianity. So today we're going to talk about that, explain that. Some of you know that Christianity kind of came from Judaism, so... Where did they part ways and why and what does that mean for you listening? So before we get into that, we want to let you know about an opportunity to support Jewish communities all around the world in areas you've probably never heard of. Um, We go and we serve them. Uh, We bring them water, uh, help their physical needs, bring them um, medical care, as well as the good news of Jesus. Um, We've been serving in Ethiopia for decades and we actually have some coffee directly from Ethiopia. It's called the Lost Tribes Coffee. You can get more details on our website if you want to support the work that we're doing and if you stay tuned to the end of this podcast you can enter for a chance to win that coffee for free. So let's discuss. Okay, so Carly, you said to get right into it, you know, that some of our audience may recognize that the roots of Christianity are, in fact, in Judaism. So where, from your perspective as a Christian, not from a Jewish background, from a Gentile background, what is the beginning of Christianity? Where did this whole thing, religious system, faith, whatever you want to call it, called Christianity begin? You know, it's interesting, Ezra. If you ever watch late night TV, you know, sometimes they go out on the street and they ask people questions. Right. And it's they get like a variety of it's answers. Horrifying. It would be interesting to ask this question to a variety of Christians. Because when I first think of the question, I think most people would say, well, the beginning of Christianity is the beginning of the Bible, Genesis. That's where Christianity began. Huh. But the the main piece of Christianity that we know is Jesus. Mm -hmm. So the beginning of Christianity would be the entrance of Jesus. That's why I think it'd be interesting to ask Christians, you know, what they think the beginning of Christianity is. That's interesting. And I actually would assume the opposite. I'd assume that people would say, yeah, Jesus, right? Like it's the Sunday school answer. Like Jesus showed up and that's the beginning of Christianity. And to my, my shock, I'll say maybe horror maybe is a little bit too strong a word, but it's getting there. I've heard major pastors in America, like renowned teachers who generally really handle the scriptures well, say, like this is almost a quote, you could throw out the Old Testament and still be a fully devoted follower of Jesus and in essence not miss a beat. Yeah. And I'm going, okay, so then the worldview there is Christianity is a new religion, and Jesus shows up with a grand opening sign and balloons and says, here's where it's at. Forget what's been. This is the way of the future. Right. And my assumption, maybe I'm wrong, I guess I'd like to be wrong, is that the Christian on the street is going to say, yeah, Christianity, Jesus, it begins with Jesus. Yeah, well, I guess we'll never know unless we do that survey. Um, But 
Interestingly, the word Christian, the first time it says in the Bible, you know, someone was called a Christian is in Acts 11, 25 to 26. At the end, it says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So I wouldn't have known that. I would have, again, said, you know, oh, it was when Jesus came, but that's where it says they were first called Christians. Right. And so we should understand that Greek word there, right? So Christos in Greek is Messiah, to use a Jewish word, now also an English word. And the idea was why it says the the, the disciples, actually disciple is, is a Hebrew idea. We don't think of it that way, right? Because we think, yeah, the disciples, the New Testament guys, right? Peter, John, James, you know, all these guys uh, who are following Jesus around in his new religion called Christianity. But disciples were actually what was called Talmidim in Hebrew. A a Talmud was a follower of a teacher, a follower of a rabbi. And the idea was you would literally, they would say, be covered in the dust of his footsteps, the dust of his sandals, because you'd follow that rabbi, that teacher, so closely. And so this idea in in the New Testament scriptures of the disciples, like you just read uh, in Acts, is, is followers of Jesus, and we see that a couple times in the Gospels, right? People called him rabbi or rabboni, which is even more this intimate, like, my teacher, the one I'm following. And so the followers of Jesus were literally called disciples talmidim, followers of this rabbi named Jesus, whom they believed to be the Messiah. And in Antioch, it looks like this group of people following Jesus and saying, this man was the Messiah, this man is the Messiah, grew to a critical mass where they actually had a name. And in English, it comes out Christians. In the Greek, it's Christianus, which is, go back to that root, Christos, it's followers of the Messiah, or you could say Messiah followers. Mm -hmm. And so what I think the scripture is saying, if we look at the context, is by Antioch, the followers of Jesus actually had a name because they reached critical mass and they were followers of the Messiah. Why? Because they believed Jesus was the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Where does the idea Messiah come from? It's the Redeemer and the Savior of Israel, Mm -hmm. who, we understand from the scriptures, we'll get to it in a minute, had also invited non-Jewish people into that same faith. It's interesting because our world today is predominantly Christian first, right. but back then the world was predominantly Jewish first. And so these quote unquote Christians were coming into this through a Jewish culture, which right. is so different than what we see today, which is a Christian culture and then trying to invite other people into it predominantly. Right. So what was that like? Like, what were there discussions among Jewish people of how do we let these Christians into our culture? It's a great question, and it seems like a backwards idea nowadays, right? Like, well, what are the Jewish believers in Jesus going to do with the Christians? These days, it sounds like all the conversations we're having is church leaders and pastors going, ah, what are we going to do with these Jewish believers in Jesus? That's weird. Messianic Jewish congregations still keeping the Jewish feasts. I don't know how we feel about that. Still, uh, you know, praying Hebrew prayers and blowing shofars on Rosh Hashanah. Is that even biblical, right? It's like we're having the opposite conversation. But we need to rewind and say, what's actually happening in the New Testament? And I would challenge our audience, like, check me on this, but I think you're going to find that it's true. The vast majority of the Jewish, of the New Testament scriptures are written by Jewish men and often to a Jewish audience. Not always. Like, of course, Paul's writing to the Romans and the church in Ephesus and the church in Corinth. 
but you have these other books like James who says, you know, to the, to the tribes of Israel scattered among the nations, scattered in the diaspora. So I, I would argue the book of James, and that Hebrew word is actually Yaakov, Jacob, but we call it in English James, was a book written primarily to Jewish believers in Jesus. I think Hebrews is the same case. And the Gospels, as much as they have become this canon of Christian scripture around the world, were actually accounts, by and large, of Jewish men saying, this is how we know that Jesus is the one we've waited for. Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so the whole context that the New Testament scriptures, one, are, are happening in and then often being written in is this idea that there wasn't a new religion called Christianity, Carly. It was Jewish men and women who had understood, come to believe that Jesus is in fact the one we've waited for. He's the Messiah. He's the one Moses told us was coming that we should listen to, a prophet greater than Moses. He's the one that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah saw and spoke of, this suffering servant who would taste death but who would take away the sin of the world and wouldn't remain in the grave. This is the one and we're putting our faith in him. And this was not a Christian religious practice. This was a very Jewish idea. Mm -hmm. So fast forward, you know, and the book of Acts sort of tracks through, you know, the, the chronology of all of this. We see this in the first nine chapters of Acts. And then in Acts 10, maybe you're familiar with the story, it's Peter's vision. Right, and Peter sees this sheet. He's in the port of Jaffa, Yafo in Hebrew, which is still today South Tel Aviv, still there. You can go visit. He's in the port of Jaffa, and he has this vision, and it's this sheet with all these animals that, according to kosher law, Torah, were unclean. And a lot of people have said, this is where Jesus is telling Peter that Jewish believers don't have to stay kosher anymore. No, because we need to look at the whole context of what's happening. Peter goes, I can't eat this, right? The, the famous scripture, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he goes, no, never. I would never eat this. And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And we're sitting here going, probably as puzzled as Peter was when he wakes up, what meanest the Lord by these things? Right? What the heck is going on here? And then we need to look at what happens right after that, after this Acts 10 experience, is Peter is invited by a Gentile, by a prominent man in society, but a Gentile nonetheless, to a Gentile home and he ends up preaching the gospel and people come to faith. Now, the reason Peter needed that vision from the Lord is Jews and Gentiles didn't mix. And so these Jewish men and women who were following Jesus, Carly, totally understood that they had been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the, you know, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, like, like uh, John the Baptist said, and that their sins were forgiven and that now they're living in the promises given to Abraham, right? This is how we become a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is how we become the fullness of what God intended the Jewish people, what he intended the people of Israel to be. But it probably never occurred to them that non-Jewish people would be invited into the faith of a Jewish Messiah. Mm -hmm. And Peter had to have literally a vision from heaven to understand when I send you to a place that you understand to be off limits, go because I don't see it as unclean. I see it as men and women, not Jewish, but men and women nonetheless, that I so love the world that I died for them just like I died for you. And so it's this divine setup where Peter understands and it's this famous, it's this famous passage where Peter goes, ah, now we understand that God is not a respecter of persons, meaning God's not saying salvation is only for the Jews. He's saying salvation is first for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but salvation is also for all men and women, tribes, tongues, and nations, and peoples who would call upon him 
in faith, through faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who's also the savior of the world. So in Acts 10 and thereafter, you see Jewish disciples, Jewish believers realizing, ah, oh, the gospel is for the Gentiles. And not only realizing it, feeling this personal, even national responsibility as redeemed men and women in Israel to actually take the good news of the Messiah to all people's tribes and tongues. And so under Paul's missionary journeys, under Peter, under Barnabas, under Silas, we see all these passages through the rest of Acts and into the rest of the New Testament of the good news being proclaimed largely, largely, we miss this, by Jewish believers in Jesus proclaimed to Gentiles throughout the world because that's exactly what God had in mind. It's interesting to think about that because it, it, the gospel was for the Jews and they were sharing it, where right. now in our culture it's like, the gospel is for the Christians and they're sharing it. Totally. So it's really a, a totally different context to what we know now. Right. And I think, you know, like we said a few minutes ago, a, a big part of the discussion, even debate or discomfort among church leaders is, well, what are we going to do with these Jews who believe in Jesus, but they're still trying to be Jewish? And in fact, it was the reverse. In Acts 15, there's this famous Acts 15 council. What was going on there? Well, it was this summit of largely Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And what were they discussing? Oh my gosh, not only did God mean for salvation to come to the Gentiles, way more non-Jewish people are now responding to the gospel than Jewish people are, and they're not Jewish, and they don't know anything about kosher law, and they don't know anything about our calendar or Torah. What do we do with them? Like, is this okay? And what they come to through probably a lot of heated discussion, otherwise it wouldn't be a truly Jewish meeting, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, in, in, reading between the lines here, and it says, you know, it seemed right to the Holy Spirit. So there's this witness of God hey, Jewish believers in Jesus, you're on the right track here. They're saying, we're not going to hold these men and women to keep Shabbat. We're not going to hold them to eat only what we consider clean. We're not going to hold them to become Jewish and pray in Hebrew and go to synagogue. We're just going to ask them to do a few things which aren't, in fact, exclusively Jewish tradition or covenant. It's actually back to, like, what God expected of Noah, right? This idea, don't sacrifice meat to idols, don't be sexually immoral. Like it's this, it's these foundational things that are saying to the Gentile, Jesus-believing world, don't become Jewish. Not only shouldn't you, it's not what God has in mind. Just recognize that you're serving the God of Israel and worship him, don't worship other gods, and don't be sexually immoral. Mm -hmm. Like that's what they boiled it down to. So the whole debate in the first century, at least in what we see in Acts, wasn't what do we do with Jews who want to stay Jews and believe in Jesus. It was what do we do with Gentiles who believe in Jesus who aren't Jewish. Yeah, that's that's crazy to think about because that's not how we see it today. Right. So we talked kind of about the beginning of Christianity and a little bit of history there. Let's talk now about the beginning of Judaism. Right. So where where does Judaism begin and then what's the history that followed there? Yeah, and you know, I'll, I'll be really quick here or try to be. If you want all the details, listen to our other episode called, what is it called? Was, was Adam, Adam Jewish. Was Adam Jewish. Thank yeah. you. I was going to say, was Adam the first Jew? So listen yeah. to that and we talk about like, where do we get this whole idea of the Jewish people and who were they and where did they begin? But real quick, in a nutshell, we have to go back to Genesis 12 and God calls Avram, Abram in English, out of really Syria, Iraq area of the world and says, go to a land I'll show you and I will bless you and you will be a blessing. And it says, and Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. And so we see shortly thereafter, uh, it says, Abram the Hebrew. And Hebrew, uh, this, more on this in the other podcast, is this idea of a man of the covenant. 
that Avram, Avram had this covenant with God, and the covenant was God made him a promise, and Avram's part was to believe him. And so then Avram, Avraham, he becomes Avraham, a father of many nations, and then Isaac and Jacob become the Jewish people, and you have this Jewish faith. But in every generation of the people of Israel, there was this understanding, actually way back from before Genesis 12, that there was coming a day when a descendant of the Jewish people would crush the head of Satan, who had, in essence, introduced sin to the world and been the cause of the curse and death. There would be one coming who would put an end to the death sentence brought by the sin of Adam, the sin of Adam. Okay? So we really have to look back to Genesis 12 for the beginning of Judaism. Uh, was it a religion invented? No, it was a man who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and then his descendants. That's the beginning of Judaism. Okay, so then let's take it back to where we were just talking. Je- Jesus enters. Right. He's a Jew. Um, there's these uh, Jewish people who are believing in Jesus. Then what happens from there? Sure. Well, many, many, it says, you know, hundreds, and in another passage a few chapters later in Acts, there's this proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, turn uh, turn from your sins, turn back to God, repent, and turn back to God so that your sins may be blotted out. And thousands of Jewish people are responding to this good news. And the whole story of what's known in, in Christian tradition as, as Pentecost, which was actually the Jewish holiday of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, when the Ruach, we say, the Holy Spirit of God, fills these Jewish men and they begin proclaiming the good news of of Jesus, not only in probably Aramaic or Greek, but actually in, it says, tongues. And it was so that every Jewish pilgrim to Jerusalem from wherever in the world they lived at that time could hear the gospel in their own language. It's this incredible account. And so the gospel's spreading among thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of Jewish followers of Jesus But we see clearly in the scriptures, it's spreading much faster, exponentially faster throughout the known world among the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And so over the years and the decades, really we can say of Paul's life, okay, uh, these few decades after the death and resurrection and ascension, according to the scriptures of Jesus, to be with the Father until he would come again, as the, as the king of kings and as the king of Israel, we see that the body of believers, and the Greek word there is ekklesia. Is that a Jewish thing or a Gentile thing? It's both. It's just the word meaning the body of followers of Jesus, of believers in Jesus in the world, became the vast majority of it was, was, was Gentile. It wasn't Jewish. And so you now have this predominantly Gentile body of believers but still with Jewish leadership. And we see Paul telling us a number of the churches this, right? Like, tithe to Jerusalem, remember the leaders in Jerusalem, pray for them, give to their efforts. And he, he, he keeps reminding these Gentile church communities, Gentile faith communities, you're indebted to them. Why? Because the Jewish believers are trying to lord it over them? No. The idea was, remember, the Jewish Messiah came to the Jewish people who brought the good news to you, Gentile men and women. And so... return to them this great favor that they've shown you. Not because you owe them something other than a debt of love, but the idea was the gospel came from Israel. Or as the scriptures say, salvation is of the Jews. Mm -hmm. And so Paul's pointing on that among these Gentile communities. But we still see an adherence to Jewish uh, culture. Paul, Paul says, you know, a number of times the Jewish holidays are coming and I need to go to Jerusalem. So Paul, called to the Gentiles, still makes it very clear he's living a Jewish life and that the roots of the olive tree that Paul talks about in Romans 11 are still very much Jewish. We see that throughout the first century. 
So, Ezra, many historians or even those of us who read the Bible or read about history, we know that the destruction of the temple happened in 70 AD. So where is that on this timeline? Right. So the body of believers is predominantly Gentile, but still with Jewish leadership based in Jerusalem. But as Jesus prophesied, if you will, the temple would be destroyed. And we see, like you said, that that happens. It's historically documented. In 70 AD, the Roman Empire comes in, destroys the temple, kills a number of Jewish leaders, burns down the temple structures, and all of a sudden, this system that was central to Jewish worship ceases to exist. And many Jewish men and women, including Jewish believers in Jesus, who were, in essence, leading the worldwide body of Messiah at that time, are scattered. Maybe they go to Syria, maybe they go into elsewhere in the Mediterranean, they go to Italy, they go to Greece, but now you're lacking this centralized Jewish leadership from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is, is largely destroyed. At least the temple is destroyed and the Romans are in charge. And in fact, the historical accounts show us that the Romans really persecuted Jewish or Gentile believers. Uh, you know, you use the word in English from Acts, Christians. So we can say followers of the Messiah. They were persecuted. Why? Because as this body of people grew who said, our allegiance is to a king not of this world, that's totally a threat for a Caesar who said, no, my kingdom is the kingdom of kingdoms. Mm -hmm. And so you have this widespread persecution in the decades that would follow of uh, Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. But remember, there's still this concept among faith in Jesus that this is rooted in Israel. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and we as Gentiles have been brought in, but now you don't have centralized leadership in Jerusalem. You have widespread persecution, and it's harder to continue to follow. And people are going, how do I reconcile being a follower of Jesus, which is this personal experience I have, with how I function in a society that's hostile to it? So... Probably, you know, we, we often think that our problems of today are right. only problems of today. But I assume back then um, the Christian faith becomes part of the the governmental structure as well. Right. And this is, you know, this, there's a big debate. We were talking before we recorded today. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Ah, a little from column A, a little from column B. There's, there's my Jewish answer for you. But we can fast forward two centuries, okay? to, uh, or the better part of three centuries, to around 329 AD, Carly. So the Romans persecute believers, but this community of believers, because it's the gospel, which you and I believe is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew, it says, and also for the Greek, also for the non-Jew, uh, continues to grow. And so at a certain point, a, few, a couple centuries after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, this body of believers, again, predominantly not Jewish, reaches a critical mass on the earth. And one man emerges, namely a leader of leaders in the world, who is also a follower of Jesus, and his name is Constantine. So Constantine struggles with, okay, how do I actually prevent persecution of, uh, of Christians, of followers of Jesus, by somehow instituting in the fabric of society the idea that Christianity, being a follower of Jesus, isn't 
only an acceptable religion. It's actually the preferred or even the state religion. Mm -hmm. So this is a man who really was a follower of Jesus. Like we, he holds this council of Nicaea, which comes, you know, the Nicene Creed. And anybody from more of a traditional Christian background goes, yeah, it's great. It tells us all what we believe and we hold to it. And that's true. You know, it talks about Jesus being, you know, the son of God and having been buried and, you know, dying for our sins and resurrected. All of that's true. That's the good. Now, what's the ugly and the bad? It's that along with that, at this Council of Nicaea in 329, around 329 AD, Constantine made some statements. And I'm going to read you a statement because I'm imagining it's going to be as shocking to you as it was to me. Okay, so this is a man who considers himself a fully devoted follower of Jesus, but not Jesus the Jewish Messiah. Why do I say that? This is Constantine. He says, and, it, it appear, and this is him at the Council of Nicaea debating with these other leaders, do we continue to hold to Passover or do we do something else? So why am I saying that? Because 300 years after the ministry of Jesus on earth, Passover, the Jewish feast of Passover, was still held to and followed by Christians, by Jewish believers in Jesus. So how do we know, Carly, that Judaism and Christianity intersected and had strong roots together? Well, this is a great example. For 300 years, Christians followed the Jewish feasts, at least Passover. Okay? This is what, this is what uh, Constantine said regarding whether Christians should follow Passover. He said, It appeared an unworthy thing that in the celebration of this most holy feast, and what he's talking about is a feast celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus, that in the celebration of this most holy feast, we should follow the practice of the Jews, Passover, for they have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin and are therefore deservedly afflicted with blindness of soul. Let us therefore then have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd, for we have received from our Savior a different way. It was in the first place declared improper to follow the custom of the Jews in the celebration of Passover because their hands having been stained with the crime of killing Jesus and their minds are those of wretched men who are necessarily blind. Let us then have nothing in common with the Jews who are our adversaries, avoiding all contact with them and their evil way. And I could go on. But this is, so we go, yeah, Council of Nicaea, solidification of the faith. But mm -hmm. look at what else is happening at this big convention in the center of the known world. And so here Constantine's finishing this statement at the Council of Nicaea, talking about how he needs to divorce anything Jewish from anything Christian. And he says, therefore, this irregularity must be corrected in order that we, Christians, may no more have anything in common with those parasites and murderers of the Lord. This is the leader of the known world. And he says, no single point in common with the perjury of the Jews. And so here's the moment, right? The early 300s AD, Carly, where in essence, this permanent separation happens by edict of, in terms of world rulers at that time, a king of kings, right? An emperor of emperors, Constantine, separating anything Jewish from anything Christian. So Ezra, it sounds like he's saying that the Jewish people are enemies of Christians. Yeah, and that's, you know, where, where does this idea come from? And people might say, well, Paul himself said it. 
And I've heard that a bunch. Well, Paul said the Jews are the enemies. Uh, well, of what? Let's look at the context. Paul does say Romans 9, 10, and 11, and Paul's talking about his burden, which is a God-given burden for the salvation of his own people, and God's enduring heart cry and burden for the salvation of Israel. And Paul says, on account of the gospel, on account of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Jewish people are enemies. But here's, Constantine changes that. And let me say what Paul's saying is that until those blinders of unfaith are removed from the eyes of a Jewish man or woman, they can't see Jesus for who he is. And because we believe he's not the Messiah, we'll actively resist the proclamation that he is. Again, until the, the eyes of unbelief are removed and we can see through the eyes of faith. Mm -hmm. So Paul is saying the Jewish people are enemies of the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah until the blinders are removed, which is God's intent. And Constantine takes that idea and he twists it in a diabolical manipulation for the rest of history, it begins right here. Instead of saying the Jewish people are enemies of the good news of Jesus, he's saying the Jewish people are enemies of God himself and by association, they're enemies of the church. And Carly, I believe that in 329, with these statements from Constantine, this becomes the foundation that throughout the rest of history, Almost every time you see a Christian system unite itself with a political campaign, what comes out of that is an anti-Semitic declaration that the Jewish people are our enemies. One of the most recent examples is the Nazis, right? The Jewish people are parasites in society, and part of being this Christian nationalist Reich, uh, you know, centered in Germany means we need to get rid of these people. They're mm -hmm. enemies of God, they're our enemies, they're enemies of the church. Mm -hmm. It's this declaration that the Jewish rejection of Jesus means that people who are true followers of Jesus should have nothing to do with anything Jewish. And this is where the, the holiday of Easter comes from. It's we want to celebrate the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but we don't want to do it at Passover, which is how we have been doing it, because we want to separate our faith from any Jewish underpinning whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so this whole idea, you know, that we hear today of like Christ killers and, oh yeah, the Jews killed Jesus. Where does that come from? Well, it came from the leader of the known world in 329 AD. And it was in essence codified into what it meant to be a follower of the true Christian religion. Unfortunately, just like in today's world when like you said, the leader of the known world makes statements like this, then everyone, you know, that becomes part of history, what's passed down. Right. So extreme anti-Semitism. Totally. Um, and like you said, especially when it becomes to your origin, like to be a good, quote unquote, Christian, right. this is how you should believe. That, right. you know, that just sets the course of history for the rest of the years. Sure. So we see the decentralization of, of leadership in the body of Christ, the body of Messiah, outside of Jerusalem. We see widespread persecution and people trying to figure out how do I live my religion, my follow, my faith in Jesus in a more comfortable way. Mm -hmm. Then we see key societal leaders coming to faith in Jesus and wanting to uh, perpetuate that religion. And we see this idea that, well, and probably, I mean, understandably so, right? Like th this language that Constantine's using, Paul used in part. Right? We see it in the scriptures. Paul says, on account of the gospel, the Jewish people are enemies, enemies of the gospel. Why? Because of the widespread rejection of the idea that Jesus could be the Messiah. But here's where it goes off the rails. I would argue that 
with Constantine is where it finally goes off the rails. And it was this idea taking Paul's language that the Jewish people, until the blinders are removed and they can see who Jesus see Jesus as he truly is, being enemies of the gospel, Constantine's saying, no, the Jewish people are enemies of God and they're enemies of any follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's the key moment, in my, in my opinion, as I look at history, okay, where Judaism and Christianity separate. And if I'm the devil, which I'm not, thankfully, but if I was, and I was trying to figure out how, how can I diabolically keep my reign on earth for as long as possible. And under that is Jesus saying, you know, in essence, you won't see me again, Jerusalem, until you, Israel, cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We see that in Matthew, Mm -hmm. okay? So if I want to perpetuate my reign on earth, I certainly need to keep the Jewish people from crying out and welcoming Jesus back as the King of Kings and the reigning Messiah. How can I do that? I know I'll sow into the fabric of the worldwide system of believing in Jesus a rejection of Jewish people and an idea that the Jewish people have nothing to do with this faith, Mm -hmm. right? It's diabolical, but here it is. And the crazy thing, Carly, is it's done by someone who really believed that they were helping further faith in Jesus on the earth. 329 AD. Yeah, and I think that happens now, too. I mean, think about, like you said at the beginning, church leaders now who think they're making statements that try to further Christianity or the gospel. Right. Right. It's totally happening now. And so that's where we have to be careful not to take our current experience and put that filter back on history and reread everything through the way we understand it today. And what I mean by that is out of this council at Nicaea came this religious system called Christianity, which had, which intentionally by design was divorced and surgically separated from anything Jewish. And then to look back on history and say, yeah, Jesus was showing up to invent a religion called Christianity and tell the Jewish people to leave their Jewishness and come to him. Mm -hmm. That's taking current events and then reading that back through history according to an erroneous understanding. And I would challenge our audience not to do it. Look at the New Testament, look at the context, look at the historical accounts of what's happening in the world in the decades and even century after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And what you'll find is that the body of believers, Jew and Gentile in the world, totally understood that what they were participating in was faith in the God of Israel through Jesus, the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. Yeah, I think that's such a great point because it's so easy for us to take what we know now and filter everything we read through that. So reading the Bible with what we know now about church and Christianity and not realizing the Jewish culture that existed, what was happening in in politics and persecution and all of those things, because we don't know that, so we just read it through the way that we see it now, which is a huge mistake. Right, and I think you know my final thought for both our Jewish and our Christian audience is don't paint with so broad a brush that you're forced to make false choices. Okay, so what do I mean by that? For the for the Christian audience, don't read history through the lens of the council at Nicaea and say, yeah, the only way for a Jewish person to be reconciled to Jesus is to leave their Jewish faith and convert to another religion. That's not the case. But I would also challenge our Jewish audience and say, also don't look at history through the council of Nicaea. Look at the life and the ministry of Jesus. Apart from the religious system, which was largely done by Constantine for political expediency, as much as through personal devotion to God, to, to, you know, to Jesus, 
and, and don't assume that Jesus is the God of the Christians and that being a Jewish person necessarily means having nothing to do with him, mm-hmm. right? Challenge for the Christian audience, don't separate anything Jewish from your own experience in Jesus. Challenge to the Jewish audience, don't assume that Jesus has nothing to do with the faith in the God of Israel that we hold on to as a people because mm-hmm. he has everything to do with it. Yeah, that's a really great point. For those listening, I hope this was thought-provoking and some of it was new, maybe something you you haven't really sat down and, and thought about before. You know, if you look in the show notes, you can see all of the verses that we're talking about and the words that we're talking about if you want to go back and review any of that. So thanks so much for listening this week. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, you can enter for a chance to win a bag of our Lost Tribes coffee for free, and you can do that at ajewandagentiledisgust.org. If you want to hear more episodes of this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a review. That's really helpful to us. You can also follow us on social media at the handle a Jew and a Gentile discuss. Leave any questions you have. You can also send those to us on our website. If there's anything you want us to discuss, uh, we read, look at all the questions and consider that for future episodes. Thanks again for listening. Join us next week for another episode. This show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.